We've made it to the seventh chapter of the book of Romans together. If you want to turn to chapter seven with me. Paul is detailing for us here in Romans God's plan of the gospel, his work that he has provided in allowing fallen, sinful man to be able to be reconciled to him, justified before him by putting his faith and trust in the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished on his behalf on the cross. We've looked at man's lost, sinful condition. We saw that in the first three chapters, thereabouts. We looked then at God's provision of justification from chapter 3 on through chapter 5. But then, as we got into Romans chapter 6, we've transitioned into the what now aspect of, of salvation. After sinful man has believed in the gospel, been justified before a holy and righteous God, what now? Starting in chapter 6, we began to talk about sanctification. The life that a believer, one who has been saved, is to live. Sanctification means to be set apart. We are set apart to God. We are set apart from sin. God has taken us out of that condition, which we saw in detail in those first few chapters, and has set us aside for himself, for service to him. The word sanctification, or sanctified, is the word holy. Holy, set apart, sanctified, saints, those are all interchangeable references for what we're talking about here. Having been justified by faith, we have been set apart, made holy by God. Anyone who has believed in the gospel is a saint of God. When we were justified at that moment of salvation, we were taken from the realm of condemnation under sin, and we were set apart to God. As far as our position before God is concerned, that was all accomplished at that time. When God looks at us now, anyone who has believed in the gospel, he sees us as righteous, as holy. We now belong to him. That is our positional sanctification. But then there's also a progressive or a practical sanctification that occurs in the believer as we live our lives. As we live day by day, we still live in this world. We still live in these bodies. We still function in our day-to-day -day lives. Mostly the same day-to-day -day lives that we functioned in before. A person who goes to work in an office somewhere, goes home at the end of the week, Someone witnesses to him over the weekend, right? He's not saved. He goes home over the weekend. Someone witnesses to him. He trusts in the gospel. He gets saved that weekend. What happens on Monday? He goes right back to that office, doesn't he? Goes right back to his job. He gets saved, but he's back to his regular life. He works with the same people. He has the same job. The same projects are still waiting on his desk or in his inbox. He has the same tasks, same boss. He lives in the same house. He has the same family. None of that changes. What does change? He changes. He is a new creature. He has been set free from sin and set free from condemnation. He's been made alive, but in this world, his life here doesn't immediately change. Nothing else is different for him. Now, what's the what is different is how he lives his life. He now lives his life differently. Whatever sins he might have been involved in before, he now puts those aside. 
the way that he prioritizes his life and sees his tasks before him, that might all be different, will all be different in his eyes. But the temptations, the situations, all those things that were there before, he now navigates differently than he did prior to when he believed the gospel that weekend. His life from that moment on is one of progressive sanctification. Positionally, he is now holy before God. That's how he stands. Now he will live his life by walking, making decisions, choosing to participate in righteous actions, and living a holy, a sanctified life, a life that is set apart for God. It's that ongoing choosing of doing right that will now characterize his life. That's the life of the true believer. Paul started off in chapter 6 talking about this, the believer's separation from sin, how we ought to view ourselves now that we have believed, now that we have been justified, declared to be righteous before God. He started in verse 1 talking about whether we are free to live a life of sin now that we're saved. You've been saved from sin and from that condemnation. Are you free to keep doing it? The answer, may it never be. May genoito. Why is that? He says, because we've died to sin. He said in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Through the work of the Holy Spirit, at the moment of our salvation, we were baptized into Jesus Christ. He was crucified. We are crucified with him. He was buried and raised. We are buried and raised with him. Raised up to what? Newness of life. Life that we are to walk in, live in, that will characterize us now that we belong to him. Throughout the chapter, we saw this concept. We are dead to sin. It no longer has any power over us. Before, we were enslaved to it. But now we are free from it. Free from its power. Free from its consequences. Free from its authority in our lives. Believers never have to succumb to sin again. They don't. So how does that affect the way that we live? Knowing that. Verse 11, he said, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This was his first command in the letter. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. What does that look like? The next verse, he said, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This was all about what we are to do, how we are to live. Don't present your bodies to sin. Don't obey sin any longer. Do present your your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. This is all about what we do, about our actions. Now that we are saved, keeping in mind, and we stress this over and over again because people bring up this objection, Keeping in mind, this is not about becoming saved. We are already saved at this point. That's what Paul's talking about here. Those who have believed. As believers, we have died to sin. We present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. This is about 
what we are to do now that we are saved. Throughout the rest of the chapter, we saw that. Down in verse 17, he said, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He uses the analogy of slavery here. We were slaves to sin prior to salvation. But we became obedient to the gospel, believed in the work of Christ on the cross. Obedience to the gospel that produces a life of obedience. Because we went from slavery to sin to become slaves of righteousness. We went from one master to another. And remember, there's no concept of someone who's masterless. Everyone has a master. A person is either enslaved to sin and has a master of sin or enslaved to righteousness. Living a sinful life or living a righteous life. Down in verse 22, we saw the results of this. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Our new life enslaved to God is one that produces fruit for God. That word benefit in that verse is the word fruit. And that produces sanctification. And the ultimate outcome is when we will be completely set apart. When the journey is over and we, were, we are completely free from even the very presence of sin. When we live with Him for all eternity in glory. That is what we anxiously await. We saw all of that in chapter 6. Paul making it very clear that the distinction has been made. We are no longer the same as we once were. No longer under the same master. No longer enslaved to that same life. We now have true freedom. Freedom to live as God created us to live. To live a life that is pleasing and honoring to Him. We didn't have that freedom before. Someone who's lost in their sins cannot live a life that is pleasing to God. But now we have freedom to do that. Now we come to chapter 7. And there is still more that Paul wants to make clear that we have been freed from. And that is the authority to the law. Keep in mind, we have chapter divisions. But this was a continuous flowing letter from Paul. Right? He's just continuing on with his thought here. This concept of sanctification that started in chapter 6, that's where it started, but it will continue on through chapter 8 where we will finally see the outcome in our glorification, the completed process of this. So he talked about how we are set apart from sin in chapter 6, the beginning of that, but now he needs to take, take another step here and he introduces the law again. He talks about the law. Well, what about the law? Why do we need to go there next? Throughout the letter, he has brought up the Mosaic Law. Back in the early chapters, when talking about our own sinfulness, right? But clear back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he began in chapter 1 talking about whom? He was talking about the Gentiles. He was talking about those who had no specific revelation from God. He talked about those that just had knowledge of the creation, just general revelation from God. But then in chapter 2, what did we see? He moved on to those that had been given more revelation. 
more than just general revelation seen in the creation, those who had been given the law. The embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, he called it. The law, he made clear, had been given to reveal sin. To show God's standard of righteousness. To show Israel what it would take to live a righteous life before God. And not a single one of them could live up to it. It was impossible for someone to meet that standard. Why? Because, as he went on to explain, as he was talking about in those chapters, they were unrighteous people. Everyone before God is unrighteous, cannot live up to his standard of righteousness. And that was revealed by the law. Throughout the letter, he has brought up the law. Because evidently, there was an element of Jews, element of a Jewish contingent of some sort, in the church at Rome. It was a Gentile church. But just about everywhere, there were elements of Judaism that made their way into churches back in that early time. And Rome was no exception to that. He keeps bringing up these issues of the law and answering objections that would come up because of those that knew the law and had held to the law. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 20, the very end of the chapter, he said, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. There we talked about how the law was brought in, or, or it brought an increase in transgression. It didn't cause transgressions. It didn't cause sins. It didn't force people to sin. But the effect of having laws, of having commands, things that people were either to do or not to do, had the effect in sinful people of bucking against what they're told. Imagine that. Anybody ever been told to do something and think, now I don't want to do it? So sin increased. Now in chapter 6, that brought about the whole discussion on sin. Maybe it's good to sin if that increases grace. No, no, no. May it never be. And that brought out that whole discussion. But look in, at verse 14 of chapter 6. When Paul was concluding that first argument against the believer continuing in sin... He said in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not be master over you. And that's what we talked about at the end of chapter 6. That's what concluded the chapter that he was talking about there. Sin is not the master of the believer. But then he says, you are not under law, but under grace. Those who are under law are under grace. Condemnation, because as we've seen throughout the letter, the law gave rules, but it gave no power. There was no enablement to follow those rules. It was simply a list. It was simply a set of standards. Grace gives that enablement. The power of God to live a righteous life comes from God as a gift of his grace. It never came from the law. This is important to note because it's off of this verse, verse 14, that Paul takes us into chapter 7. The first part of verse 14, sin shall not be master over you, was explained in the following verses in chapter 6. But now, as we come to chapter 7, he's going to bring this out. He's going to further define this statement, the second half of that statement. 
what does it mean to no longer be under law? He made this statement in chapter 6, the only time he says it, but didn't explain or develop it at all. But in his explanation of sin in the previous verses, he has made statements that put the law right up there with sin. And therefore, the question is going to come up, another question he's going to anticipate and answer, is the law sinful? Is it sin? What association does the law have with sin? So that's what he's going to seek to answer here in chapter 7. So we come to chapter 7, and he's going to develop this further. And so now we actually get to move into chapter 7. So look at verse 1 with me. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Now he starts off with a phrase that we've seen before. Do you not know? We saw this back in chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Use that exact same phrase there. It's a phrase that is meant to convey that this is something that they know. This is something that they should already re- know. It's a gentle rebuke, basically. It's kind of like if you're talking to your kids and you say, don't you know that you're not supposed to hit your sister? Of course they know that they're not supposed to do that, right? We know that they know that. Well, Paul is already saying, is saying this as well. You already know this. What do they know? He says that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives, right? That's his premise. The law has jurisdiction over a person who is alive as long as he lives. Now, in parenthesis here, before this, we have another phrase where Paul states whom he's addressing here. He says, I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, he's basically stating for us here what I mentioned before. He's going to address this law issue that he briefly mentioned in the previous chapter. What about the law? Now, He's now speaking to those who know the law, who would ask questions about the law, who would have questions about this, right? There is some discussion as to whether he's referring in this phrase to the Mosaic law or just law in general. And it will become clear in the next few verses that the conversation is centered around the Mosaic law in this chapter. But his meaning here. Uh, in this phrase, could be one of a couple different things. One, he could be talking about those who are familiar with the Mosaic Law, Jews or even Gentiles who had sat under Jewish teaching, those that basically saying, if, if you're thinking about the Mosaic Law, then I'm talking to you. Or two, he could be just talking about those who are familiar with law in general, just have a basic understanding of how law works. In this verse here, I don't think it matters as much, but I think his ultimate reference is to the Mosaic Law, although his first point that he makes is really just a general reference about it, where he says the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. This is true of law, any type of law, in general. Roman law, Mosaic law, even our laws, they only apply to to a person as long as they're alive, right? Sometimes we hear about someone who commits a crime and they're in prison waiting to stand trial and they die in prison. Well, what do we say? Oh, he escaped justice, right? He, he, he's not going to get justice now. Why? Why wouldn't he? 
Because now they can't be convicted and tried and sentenced for that crime any longer, can they? Right? They died. They're dead. They no longer have any obligation to the law. The law has no jurisdiction over them anymore. You can't put a dead person on trial. You can't convict someone who's dead. If a person is in the 10th year of a 20-year prison sentence and they die, do they finish their sentence? No. Right? They died. There's no more 10 years that they have to go through. So that's the general point that Paul is making here. The law, any law, only has jurisdiction over someone who is alive. That's who it has authority over. Now, in the next two verses, he's going to illustrate this point. He'll use an illustration through the marriage relationship, a binding relationship between a husband and wife. So look at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. Husband and wife are married. And by law, they're married until they die. I know we can go into all kinds of details about laws about marriage, but what do we say, at least traditionally, in a marriage ceremony, right? In a wedding ceremony, till death do us part, right? Now, of course, different paths and different marriage, we can talk about all that stuff, legality of divorce and all that stuff, but that's not Paul's point here. This isn't a discussion really on marriage. He's making a specific point using marriage, okay? People get caught up in those discussions in this section, but that really has nothing to do with Paul's point here. Generally speaking, the binding relationship between a husband and a wife is broken at death. That's really the point that he's making. A husband and wife are legally married, having all of the benefits and the responsibilities of that marriage, and then one of them dies. What happens? Those benefits and responsibilities are done. Right? They're over. Death ends the relationship between a husband and wife. They're separated. Continues on in verse 3. Same illustration. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now here... There's a reference to someone else, right? Another party, another man. While married, the wife is not free to join with another man, right? That's, that's adultery. Again, again, this isn't really a lesson on the sanctity of marriage, but Paul is just presenting these basic common sense ideas to make his point. A wife, or, or a husband for that matter, but here he uses the wife, is not free to join with another while their spouse is still alive. But if their spouse dies, then what? They're free from their legal obligations to one another. Then she's free to go out and marry someone else. That's not adultery because her previous husband died. Very clear, very basic truth that Paul is presenting here in this example. And this isn't difficult. It's not hard to figure out. It's a very basic idea of the law being applicable as long as a person is alive, but death separates that relationship. Okay, so now, having illustrated that concept, he goes on in verse 4, where he applies this idea to the law. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, 
to Him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now here, he brings back his argument that we saw back in chapter 6. The idea of us dying. We died. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. People get off on tangents with this here because the illustration of marriage doesn't fit exactly into what he's saying here. In the illustration, the husband was the one that died, and the wife, who didn't die, goes on and is free to marry someone else. But here, Paul states, who dies? We do. The believer dies, right? Again, it's the basic concept of death that Paul is using here. Death separates any responsibility between two binding parties. In marriage, a person dies, the one who is still alive is now free. With the law, it's the believer who dies is now free from the law. Why didn't he state that the husband is now free? Why didn't he say that the husband who died is now free to go and marry somebody else? Because the husband's dead, right? That doesn't, that doesn't work in that in illustration. So I don't think we need to get too caught up here into who dies in these examples. It's an illustration of... Death means separation that we're talking about here. Here, with regard to the law, it's the believer who dies, just like we saw back in chapter 6 as well. Look at verse 3 again in chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His what? Death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. What did He tell us there? We died, right? We died with Christ. Baptized into Christ, we died with Him. He then went on to talk about how that affected our relationship to sin. Right? We died. Sin had no more power over us. In chapter 6, he talks about sin, mentions the word sin like 18, 17 or 18 times. So here in chapter 7, we see the same idea, but with the law. He's going to mention the law like 20 sometimes in chapter 7. He says, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Note, we were made to die, he says here. This was the work of God on our behalf. Baptizing us into Christ, that spiritual baptism that that we talked about back in chapter 6. As Christ died, we who are spiritually baptized with Him died with Him. Now, what effect did that have? It freed us. It freed us from our previous responsibilities and obligations. We were under sin. And for those who were under the law, specifically the nation of Israel, the Jews, to whom the law had been given, but even Gentiles who had believed could claim this as well, there is freedom from the law. There is no power or authority that the law has over a person who has died with Christ. Now, why did we die to Christ? Or, sorry, why did we die to the law? He says next, so that you might be joined to another. Now you see, he uses some of the components of his previous illustration. The husband dies, the wife is free to join to another husband. Here, we died to the law so that we can join to another. 
And who is this to which we join? To him who was raised from the dead. Who's that? That's Christ. We are joined with Christ. Again, what did we just see? Chapter 6, verse, end of verse 4. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We too walk in a new life. We are now joined to Christ in new life. Verse 5 again, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Down in verse 8, he said, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. This is again our identification with Him. We are identified now with Christ. He lives. We believe in Him. We put our faith and trust in Him. So now we live with Him. We are joined to Him. Now that's good. That's great. We're joined to Him, but it doesn't end there. It produces something. He continues on here in verse 4 of chapter 7. He says, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What is that? That is producing fruit. What we talked about last time in detail. It's been seen throughout chapter 6. Verse 22 of chapter 6 said, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You derive your benefit, your fruit. That's the word that we're talking about here. We are free from the law, joined to Christ, so that we might bear fruit. This is our enslavement to obedience, to righteousness, to God, saved to serve, bearing fruit for Him as those who belong to Him, as those who are now identified with Him. That is now who we are, fruit bearers for God. These are those righteous deeds that we talked about in our last lesson. Not deeds that save us, no deed saves us, but these are deeds that are produced in the life of one that has truly believed. One who has placed their faith and trust in Him for salvation. We now live a life walking in righteous deeds. We saw this last time. We looked at a few passages about this. Galatians chapter 5 where it talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And that was contrasted with deeds of the flesh. Before we were in the flesh. We'll talk about that in a few verses. Paul says in Galatians 5 that we are to walk by the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That, there's that contrast between the two. And that's where Paul takes us here next as well. It's not in a few verses, it's in the next verse. Look at verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. While we were in the flesh. This is a phrase that is more than just being in a physical body. It's past tense here. We were in the flesh. He's talking about our previous life. He's talking about our life in the old self, our, when we were still in Adam. We were under the influence and the domination of the flesh. The same idea 
that he talks about in Galatians chapter 5. He says in Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. And he goes on and he lists out 15 different sinful things there. And then down in verse 21, he says, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the flesh, as he's using it here, as he's referring to it, he's referring to that previous state that was detailed in the first chapters of Romans. When we were lost in our sins, when we were under the control of the flesh, we were in the flesh. What happened then? What was our condition then? He says those sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Sinful passions which were aroused by the law. He's going to discuss that phrase, that, that, um, that idea in the coming verses. So we'll talk about this in detail when we get down a few verses. But we've seen this concept before already as well. Chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgressions would increase. Law increased transgressions. Back in verse 15 of chapter 4, he said the law brings about wrath. In, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, he said the law brought about the knowledge of sin. All of these little references have been bringing us to this point, talking about the law and its association with sin. Now, he doesn't say that it is sin, but that it aroused sin. It was the sinful passions that were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Once again, same as we saw previously, the sinful passions brought about fruit for death. In verse 21 of chapter 6, he said, Therefore, what benefit, fruit, were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. The law fueled the fire of the sinful passions that people had and resulted in death. That was the outcome. That was where that fruit leads. The only place that sin leads is death. Again, it's about the fruit. That's what we're seeing here. Those enslaved to righteousness who have been joined to Christ and now live with Him bear fruit for life, right? Righteous deeds that result in sanctification. Those who are in the flesh, who are enslaved to sin, who had a relationship to the law which aroused their sinful passions, bear fruit for death. That's the contrast. That's what he's trying to relate here. And he goes on and then in verse 6, and he ties his points together. He says, but now we, and there's our contrast as believers, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We have been released from the law. The word for released is a word that we've seen before. Back in chapter 6. You get the idea of how integral chapter 6 and chapter 7 are, right? I know I keep going back to chapter 6, but there, this is all tied together. Back in chapter 6, verse 6, he said, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that you would no longer be slaves to sin. That word might be done, or that phrase might be done away with, that's our word. 
for released. It's a word that means to render inoperative, to deprive of force, influence, or power. The body of sin, our old man, was rendered powerless. That's the same thing that we see here. We are released from the power or the influence of the law. He used the same word in his illustration back up in verse 2, talking about the wife and her husband, right? She is released from the law concerning her husband. And this is really the point that Paul is making here with this illustration. Just as the wife is released from her husband, the believer has been released from the law. Having died to that by which we were bound. The power is gone. The influence is gone. Why? We died. The law was in effect. It was the Word of God. It was the means by which God was dealing with the world. The nation of Israel specifically. But His dealing with mankind functioned through the law. But now that time is over. That time is no longer in effect. Why? Because having believed, we have died to it. Now some hear this and say, you're antinomian. You're anti-law. You can't say that because you're saying that that's anti-law. You don't believe that a Christian has to follow any rules at all then. That they are completely lawless, completely free to live as they want, do whatever they want, live a life of sin, live a life of lawlessness. No, that's not it at all. Did we not just go through chapter 6? Before, in our unbelief, we presented ourselves to impurity and what? lawlessness, which yielded further lawlessness, and the end result of that was death. Now, we're not anti-law. We're not even anti-Mosaic law. We'll see in just a few moments that there was nothing wrong with the Mosaic law. It's just that it simply served its purpose. Where this comes in, what happens is what he says at the end of the verse, and we see why we are free from the law. He says, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. Note, first of all, the phrase there, we serve, so that we serve. A believer serves. That's what a believer does, serves. There's no dispute in that. We live obedient lives to God, serving God as believers. Look at, again, that last half of chapter 6. Service, fruit, slaves of righteousness. We went over that again and again and again. Present your members as instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves as slaves of obedience. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. We serve, we absolutely serve and obey God, but the requirement for our obedience has changed. We serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. In the Spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit here, there is newness. We have been made new. We saw that back in Verse 4 of chapter 6, we, talk, we walk in newness of life. This is, there is newness in us. We now walk in the Spirit, live our lives by the Holy Spirit under His power as He indwells us. The Holy Spirit has only been mentioned a few times at this point, right? Building blocks. Remember, building blocks. Paul is building and progressing here in this letter. But we're going to see a lot more about the Holy Spirit and His ministry when we get to the next chapter, when we get into chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us, that empowers us 
to do the things, to obey the commands that Paul is even giving us here. It's not that there are no commands for us. It's that now we are enabled to obey commands by the Holy Spirit. He mentions the letter here. This is the law, a reference to the law. We saw this back in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, when he was talking about what a true, true Jew was, he said in verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one outwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. He was clearly talking about the Jews' relationship to the law in that section and their failure to be able to keep it. But the idea here was that the letter was the law. Same idea that he's presenting here in verse 6. He uses the same reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the same thing, the contrast between the letter and the Spirit. He refers to it as the letter because it was letters engraved on stones, tablets of stone. That's the law that he's talking about, the Mosaic law. So those who have believed have been released from the law. Now in verse 7, he has another one of his assumed questions. We're getting through a lot today, so I'm, that's why I'm kind of talking fast, I think. But It's a pretty big chunk. He has another one of his assumed questions. Well, person is now in the Spirit, joined to Christ, no longer under the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is no longer what is in effect. It has been rendered inoperative, done away with, released. As we've seen, the law never saved. The law increased transgressions. As he said in verse 5, it aroused sinful passions. What question would then come up from this? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Then I guess the law must be sinful, right? Isn't that the logical conclusion? Isn't that a natural question that you would ask? We've been freed from sin and joined to Christ. We saw that in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, in the same way, we've been freed from the law and joined to Christ. Isn't it logical to assume that the law and sin are the same or that the law must be sinful? That seems to be logical. What does Paul think? May it never be. Once again, here we are. Meganoito. Absolutely not. The law is not sin. It never was sin. Perish the thought. But how can that be? How can we say that? Well, that's where he takes us next. In the following verses, he explains why by going over what the law did and how it worked and what its effect on and relationship with sin was. To do this, he goes into the first person and he uses himself as an example here. His own experience with the law. And he's going to use one particular sin an example um, to, to show his point. So look at the rest of the verse. He says, On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law isn't sin. In fact, just the opposite of the case. On the contrary, he says, the law is what gave him a knowledge of sin. Now this takes us back to the opening chapters of the letter. Back in chapters 1, in chapters two, chapter two, there was a general knowledge of right and wrong presented in chapter one. But the more specific knowledge given in chapter two, when the law came into the picture, the Jews were given more knowledge because they had the law. The law detailed out for them what was right and what was wrong. 
But that doesn't mean that there was no knowledge at all of sin prior to the law being given. People had a general sense of what was right and what was wrong prior to that. But the knowledge of sin being a transgression against a holy and righteous God came through the law. That gave it clear-cut definition. God had put that down in writing for people to see. So what Paul is saying here is that the law revealed sin. It clearly showed it as sin. And then he gives an example. He talks about coveting. Now, I don't know that we can definitively say that coveting was a problem in Paul's life. It seems more likely that he's just picking one example, one of the Ten Commandments that he, that he picks on here. I heard someone one time talk about Protestant confession. Have you ever heard of Protestant confession? I think that's what they called it. Anyway, I might be making that up, but that's how I've always thought of it. Protestant confession, confession, you know, we don't have confession. We don't go to people and confess like that's a Catholic thing, right? We confess our sins to God, but we don't go to each other and confess things. But Protestant confession is when a pastor or a teacher stands up and teaches and gives examples from their own life, basically confessing all their dirty laundry in front of everybody. Don't be mean to your wife. Don't kick the dog. Don't speed on the interstate, that sort of thing. And people sit there and say, oh, that must be something that he has a problem with. Well, I don't think that's necessarily what Paul is doing here. I think he's just picking this one example of coveting. It's possible that this is something that he struggled with, but I don't think we can necessarily definitively say that. But here, this is the example he uses. He talks about coveting. The law said, don't covet. You shall not covet. So what did that show him? That clearly showed him that coveting is sin. Now, it's an interesting example because it's not one that is outwardly obvious. Murder, adultery, stealing, things like that. Those are obvious sins, right? And you can see them. You know, he killed somebody. We saw him do that. But coveting is something that a person can do in their heart. And it may or may not ever manifest itself externally. It doesn't necessarily become obvious, right? I mean, I could sit here and maybe... And maybe half the room is thinking about being greedy or thinking about coveting something in their lives. I have no idea. Nobody can see that. It's one that maybe it does take someone saying, hey, what you're doing is sin to truly be understood as sin. But here it's laid out for us. The law said it was sin. Now I know beyond a doubt that coveting is sin. Okay, so what happens next? Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Here, Paul personifies sin. Presents it as something that acts. Sin took opportunity and produced in me coveting. Now, note that it doesn't say the law produced sin in me. My own sinful body took that opportunity. We've mentioned it before, but here he comes out and says it. When the law said, don't do something, what did people want to do? Exactly what the law says you shouldn't do, right? That's basic human nature. We understand this because we've all experienced that. I'm not even going to poll the room. We've all experienced this. You tell a little kid, don't touch that. Don't go into the cookie jar. What are they going to do? 
All they think about the rest of the day is cookie jar. Our grandkids come over. They're one and two. Uh, we have a nightlight in our house in one of our hallways. It's a Baby Yoda nightlight. You all know Baby Yoda? Yes, I'm that nerdy. I have a Baby Yoda nightlight in my house. And I even know that his name is Grogu, okay? So we'll just get that out of the way. Anyway, but the grandkids come over. They see the nightlight. They like the nightlight. But the one-year-old, she's one, right? She just turned one. She sees it, and she just, going by, she just casually reaches out for it. Well, it's plugged into an outlet, so we smack her hand away. No, don't touch that. Then she just sits there, stares at it for like three seconds. And what does she do? With both hands, she just lunges for it, right? Now, all of a sudden, it was a, it was a casual interest a second ago, but now we've told her, don't play with that. Now that's what she wants to do. She wants to play with it. And it gets to the point where you smack her hand a few times, get her away from it, then you have to take her out of the room because that's all she's thinking about at that point. Well, that's kids, right? And we understand that. But we don't grow out of that, do we? We do the same as adults. You post a speed limit. Don't go over the speed limit. No, they go five over, right? They go 10 over, right? The speed limit's 35. You're driving down the road for somebody. This isn't Protestant confession, okay? This isn't. <laughs> Driving down the road, you go five over. Somebody's going five over. Well, okay, it's 35 miles an hour, they're going 40. You drive down the road, the speed limit goes up to 45. Great. They were happy going 40 miles an hour a minute ago. Now the speed limit's 45. They should still be happy going 40, right? No. You know it doesn't work that way. Now they're going 50, or they're going 55, right? The speed limit goes up, they don't go up to the speed limit. They go five over. That's the same type of thing. It shows what the law does. It's the Mosaic law. It showed what was right and wrong, and it fueled a rebellious spirit. It fuels that sin nature. Sin took opportunity. I shouldn't covet. Hmm, now that's all I want to do. That's how it worked. So that's what the law did. Now he says at the end of verse 8, for apart from the law, sin is dead. What does that mean? Well, it goes with this concept or this context of personifying sin. The law aroused sin, stirred it up. Before the law, that same arousing passion wasn't there, just like in my granddaughter, right? Casual interest, but didn't really think that much about the object until, don't touch it. It's not saying that sin didn't exist. It definitely existed before the law, but it's saying that sin wasn't as active, wasn't as powerful before the law. When the law came, sin became alive. It woke up and pressed even harder on the desires of those who were told, don't covet, don't do that. Now my ears are perked up. Now that's what I want to do. That's what he's getting across there. Verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. This is another one of those confusing statements or you have to think about this. This is another reason why I believe Paul is using just a general example and not really a personal one here of something that's really was going on in his own life. This is an example of the law generally, even though he's using the first person. Paul was never not under the law, never apart from it. He was born into the nation of Israel. He was under the law since the time he was born. But in a general sense, 
when the law came in, before a person knew what the law said, before God had revealed that it was wrong to covet, I was alive. In other words, I was blissfully ignorant of the fact that what I was doing was wrong. I could make an excuse for my sin, pretend that it didn't exist, and happily go on living my life without another thought about it. But what happened? Then somebody told me coveting is sin. Now, there's a twofold effect. One, I know it. I have that knowledge now that it's sin. And two, I'm stirred up to do it more and more. What did that do? He says, that killed me. I died. Sin became alive and I died. This goes along with what he had said previously back in chapter 4. That chapter 4 verse 15 said, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. He didn't say there that there was no sin, but there was no violation. In other words, there was no commandment broken. But with the coming of the law, with it being clearly defined, now there is no excuse. You coveted. You are guilty of violating the law. So sin was stirred up. I was now willingly, knowingly violating the commandment. And I died fully aware of my sinful violation. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. The law given, as given to the nation of Israel, were instructions that were given for them to live by. We don't have time to turn there, but Leviticus 18. If you want to jot down Leviticus 18, verses 4 through 5. We see there, God says, You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God, so that you, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. The law wasn't given to kill. It was given for life. It was given as a measuring stick. Remember back in, in lessons past, quite a while ago, we talked about the yardstick, carrying around a yardstick, perfect three feet long, right? 36 inches long. You have a piece of string that's a perfect three feet. That measuring stick, that yardstick that you have will reveal that. You hold up that string and you say, oh, it's a perfect yard. But if it's not a perfect yard, it also reveals that, right? Oh, it's 35 inches. It's not 36 inches. I thought it was a yard. That's how God gave the law. If a person kept it perfectly, it would show that they were righteous that they didn't need salvation, that they had life. Keeping the law never saved anyone, but the law was a measuring stick by which people could measure their lives and say, am I living a perfect life? Do I live perfectly in accordance to the law? And no one could do it. As Paul is indicating here, it was given for life, but what happened? It proved to result in death for me. Why? Sin, because of sin. Verse 11, really he reiterates here what he said in verse 8. He says, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin took that opportunity through the commandment. The commandment didn't kill me. Sin killed me. Stirred up that sin nature. Stirred up those sinful desires. 
basically, or because we all know that's how the sin nature works. Tell it to not do something, and it makes it that much more appealing, right? That's why sometimes we we don't tell our kids. I've had those thoughts before, back when I was raising kids. I don't have to raise anybody anymore. I give helpful advice, but I don't have to. I'm not responsible anymore. But anyway, um, you you tell you sometimes there are things that you don't want to tell your kids because you think, you know what, I could warn them about this, but I'm afraid that that's just going to plant the thought in their mind that they want to do that. Don't have a party while we're gone. Hmm, maybe now I want to have a party while mom and dad are gone. Something along those lines, right? But we convince ourselves that something is not sinful. And then... And we deceive ourselves, right? We deceive ourselves. Sin deceived me. We say to ourselves, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, there's nothing wrong with it. Oh, it's not like I'm murdering anybody, right? That's a favorite, right? We compare what we're doing to something that's worse, and we think, oh, now my thing is, is good in comparison. But then sin takes hold, convinces me to go along with something, and the result is it killed me. Now I'm guilty. And that's the general point that Paul is making here. The law didn't kill you. The law was a standard of righteousness that showed what was true in your life. It showed you how to live, but instead, it revealed your sin. It showed the sinfulness of those who were under it, and the end result was death. And so he concludes his thought in verse 12. We might actually get through all this. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There was nothing wrong with the law. There was not one flaw within the law. It was given by God. It was perfect. God gave the law in its entirely perfectly, and it showed His righteous standard. Its commands were holy and righteous and good. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. Back when God gave the law to Israel, it was said, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? No other nation was given the law. The law was perfect. It was righteousness revealed in the letter. It was given only to the nation of Israel. No one else had that advantage. There was nothing wrong with it. So the law was not sinful. It wasn't sin. But it was given to reveal sin, to show the nation of Israel their sinful condition, and to point them towards their need for a Savior. That's where salvation starts. That's why Paul started with that in the first two chapters of the letter, talking about the sinful condition of everyone. There's a need for salvation. To talk to someone about salvation, you have to show them their need for salvation. And that's what the law did. The sinful showing the sinful heart of those who are condemned. That's where salvation starts, but that's where we're going to end for today. So let's close in a word of prayer.